First Kings chapter 4 this evening. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon are all authored by Solomon and are, to me, spiritually exciting. I enjoy reading them. But the life of Solomon uh, is kind of boring to me. I mean, I, he, he's the character that <clears throat> you tolerate, but you don't really admire. Unless, you know, wealth and power is something that is of interest to you. When going through the life of Solomon, I look forward to references to David. It perks me up. And that's not to say there are not gems from his life, spiritually speaking. But overall, I'm looking forward to chapter 13. And... uh, What I'm saying to you this evening is that these two chapters that hopefully we'll get, four and five, I I think they're kind of boring. And I hope, I hope uh, you say, no, really, they are boring, but you did such an amazing job. Uh, Anyway, I'll try not to bog us down with the details, but uh, the title, Organization and Temple Preparation. It's a long title for the CD, but... It, um, that's, that's what we're considering. And looking at verse 1, So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials, Azariah the son of Zadok the priest. We'll pause there with that character. And I should add, um, uh, I'm not trying to cover up being boring by blaming Solomon. I am just not really uh, excited about what's in these two chapters. Uh, But I'll also add to that, that has never deterred me from reading through the scriptures. I've always been blessed reading any part of scripture. I mean, Zephaniah is exciting to me. Uh, But just as when I read Solomon, I'm looking forward to getting to Elijah. Uh, So here in verses 1 and 2, Solomon is organizing his kingdom. And he does a good job at it. His government is characterized by order and prosperity and growth. Uh, He gathered around him the right people, a company of men to oversee the kingdom. And when I say the right people, I mean the right people to bring about what he wanted. Uh, It doesn't last, of course. Each of these overseers in their various departments have their responsibilities and are very efficient. The first one up, Azariah, is a priest, and he seems to be the prime minister under Solomon. Of course, Solomon is over all of it. And in spite of Solomon's future failure, he began serving the Lord. There were pockets of disobedience already there, uh, you know, sort of like loose chains jingling around. We, we, We covered that with him marrying into the Pharaoh's uh, family and just multiplying horses and other things. But still, he loved the Lord, and it was very pronounced. But no one could seriously say that, Solomon, you served the Lord just like your father. Uh, That would not not have been accurate, and everyone would have saw through that. Azariah, the son of Zadok, the, the priest, he's a priest, but he's, he seems to be in a position 
of prime minister. Uh, in verse 3, we have mention of the scribes and the recorder. Well, David had one scribe. Solomon is said to have had two listed here. And they are sons of David's scribe. And it's because the kingdom is expanding. And it's very much, very larger, just a, a total, totally different kingdom than what David had. Solomon would have gained none of this had it not been for David. The peace that Solomon enjoyed is because David got, took it on the battlefields. And the treasures that Solomon enjoyed was because David took it on the battlefield and left it all to him, and he left it to Solomon in front of everybody. And it, 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 this gets exciting this evening when we get to chapter 5 and we start quoting David. It really just takes the whole consideration in a different direction. Uh, but the, the scribes, they kept important records. I mean, even in a business, you have to have minutes to track, well, what did we say? What did we agree on? Uh, look up things in the past, and the scribes would be there for that. And recorder were the ones that uh, were able to retrieve the records. And much of what we have in the Old Testament, in the times of the kings, comes from the research of the authors, the writers, who... Um, could access some of the public records because you just say, well, how else could he have gotten that information unless there was some record of it preserved somewhere? Uh, anyway, uh, the scribe, more than a copyist, the recorder, high position, high positioned clerks, and uh, in charge of keeping the king's records. In verse 4, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Zadok is the high priest. Abiathar was co-high priest, but as we discussed in past sessions, he was uh, deposed because of his uh, plottings with uh, the enemies of Solomon, his brother Adonijah. And when Solomon comes to the throne, this plot is, of course, underway, and uh, they overcome it. Abiathar may have retained the title out of honor to the having it be, having been the high priest, as we do with, with past presidents, we they still are referred to as. You don't refer to a past president as Mister. Uh, the proper title is Mister President. So anyway, verse five, Azariah the son of Nathan, over officers, Zabud. There's a name for you moms, to name a boy, Zabud the son of Nathan, a priest. And the king's friend. Say, bud, how you doing? You got a whole sentence right there. Oh, anyway. Uh, Azariah, the son of Nathan. And we were quick to think, okay, he's this Nathan the prophet. But I'm not convinced that Nathan was a popular name amongst the Jews. Azariah is the chief of staff. And uh, Zabud is the king's friend, which is kind of neat because we all need friends. You can't be so removed from everybody, but you can't have a friend. I, well, it's not advisable. Um, you know, it's just, I, I, who doesn't enjoy somebody that they can just relax with and have a free conversation and not end up in a contest or a debate and, you know, just so they let you have your opinion. And they respect that, and vice versa. Anyway, uh, the reason why I don't think that Azariah is, is the son of Nathan the prophet, nor is Zabud 
necessarily the son of... This is impossible to tell because we don't have the information. But whenever Nathan shows up, his name, if it is Nathan the prophet, we are told it is Nathan the prophet. And I think that it would have been remiss for the writer to leave that out if this was the prophet Nathan. And you're probably saying, (laughs) okay, we got it. Uh, Anyway, verse 6, over the household, he is appointing these men, and over the labor force, the king's household uh, is his residence, the king's palace, and his belongings, and his, you know, wardrobe, and over the servants, the butlers and the maids, the landscapers, uh, he would oversee all of that. The labor force was really uh, a, a tax on the people in the form of using forced labor. Uh, <clears throat> there were some that was not forced, but much of it was. We'll get to that in chapter 5 because that was very much part of building the temple of God. God. The Jews, many of the Jews were forced into that. They were, they were in a rotation. And then there were non-Jews that were also serving in the kingdom uh, they're building projects all over the place. It was not just the temple and the palace of Solomon being built. There were other things. In the days of Abraham, at least when I read Abraham, I get the feeling that Abraham was just free from government. There were no restrictions anybody had on Abraham. There was the threat of being attacked by, by you know, brigands, groups of... <clears throat> But life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness seems to have characterized the days of Abraham. But those days are gone, and they're not coming back. Uh, The next uh, time we will really have life, liberty, and the pursuit of of holiness is when the Lord comes to reign. Uh, Verse 7, And Solomon had twelve governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. And so Solomon divides Israel into 12 districts, not the 12 tribes, though. This is uh, distinct from the 12 tribes. He's probably making an attempt to um, uh, decentralize the land from tribal rule and the nepotism that goes with that. It doesn't work if that's what he had in mind. He puts these men over various districts, over all Israel, to make sure that uh, the king receives the support necessary to uh, run the palace and parts of the government. Uh, uh, They they would impose the taxes and they would collect them. Now, you younger Christians, taxes may not be important to you yet. Uh, But (laughs) it's coming, especially when that personal property tax shows up for your spanking new or used car. Anyway, uh, at Solomon's death, of course, it leads to the a divide, goes, springs back to tribal rule. I'm not saying he's right or wrong, although history says that he didn't, that was a mistake. Judah got some exceptions. Samuel, back, way back in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel warned, he says, when, he, when you, you want a king, you want a king like all the other nations, when you get one, He's going to take, 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 take six times. In that one little paragraph, Samuel emphasizes he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take your grain. He's just, and this is what we're seeing here in Solomon. Uh, one of the big...
big downsides about Solomon is the heavy financial tax that he placed excuse me, on everyone. Verse 8. These are the names of these district leaders. And we're only going to take one. Ben-Hur in the mountains of Ephraim. Now, not the Ben-Hur from the film. The word Ben is son, and so he's son of Hur, which is true of all of men that uh, since after Adam, all men are sons of Hur, and you just fill in the blank which particular Hur. Anyway, uh, it is not the Ben-Hur from, from the movie. In verse 11, we read of Solomon's daughter given as wife. Well, when Solomon came to the throne, he only had one child, a young child, at the time. So this tells us a time stamp. tells us that this is probably 15 years or so into his, or, or more, reign. And now he's, you know, using his daughter. I don't want to, this is how they did it. It's not necessarily something that's negative. Uh, but uh, he's taking his son-in-law and giving him a position over one of these territories. He'll do it again. This uh, supply system uh, is, again, <clears throat> something that's a little later. Verse 12, we read of Zaratan below Jezreel. Uh, that's the city where the bronze vessels for the temple will be cast. It's just on the east side of Jordan. Uh, and you'll probably go, oh, I was wondering about that. Zaratan, yeah, yeah. Rings a bell. Is it a bronze bell? Verse 13, we read 60 large cities with, walls, with walls and bronze gates, uh, where he mentions that uh, these other places here. Moses defeated these cities in Deuteronomy 3, that story is. Uh, we move down to verse 15, the daughter of Solomon again. Another daughter, another son-in-law made uh, an overseer of a territory. Now we move to verse 19. In the land of Gilead, in the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og of Bashan. Again, Moses defeated these leaders, Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy 2.3. So today, and you know, you, when I moved to Richmond, I noticed there was Civil War sites all over the place. I was surprised to find one from the Revolutionary War. But... Uh, you in Israel, it's the same thing. Every like every village, every town has some biblical connection, which makes it exciting. Uh, well, that's why we just stopped off there. Verse twenty. Now, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand of the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So, a booming economy in the promised land, as promised by God to Abraham's descendants in Genesis 22. Uh, Ecclesiastes, I, I think this is an important verse for some of us. Ecclesiastes 9.7, Solomon wrote, Go eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. <clears throat> and I've mentioned this before, uh, and from time to time, you know, we, we pray, we ask God, can you maybe get me a job? Can you increase my income? I, when I was working in the world, I remember one period of time, I was, Lord, I need more finances, and I would, I would get overtime. It was just like, man, this is great. Maybe I should ask, you know, raise the standard some. Uh, but anyway, you, we pray for these things, and I've noticed over the years, some people get the prayer granted from God and then feel guilty. Say, oh, you know, I don't deserve it. 
And just uh, be quiet. Stop that. You ask the Lord, he bless you now. Now make it serve the, the Lord. That's, that's how you respond to the blessings of God. By trying to make it work for the kingdom. Rather than, you know, letting the devil get in your head and making you feel guilty for being blessed. If by that thinking, we should all move to Tibet or some place that's remote and doesn't have bathrooms in houses or rules. I mean, not all of Tibet is like that, but the parts I'm thinking about from the documentary I was watching, uh, I wouldn't want to live there. And then there's the earthquakes and the, you know, buildings like that. So anyway, you know, you, you, it's not how, like a lily among thorns, we, we grow where we are planted and serve the Lord. So I hope that helps anyone who's prone to feeling guilty for being blessed by the Lord. We feel guilt when we have done wrong. There's nothing wrong with being blessed by by the Lord. And that's what that proverb is saying. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Verse 21 now. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Well, Israel never possessed all of her boundaries, but she did subdue them and subjected those kingdoms to tribute, to to pay to the king, in this case Solomon, and uh, that is what we're looking at. They They brought tribute. It's payment brought from a lesser kingdom to a larger kingdom. A lesser power to a governing power. Verse 22, so Solomon, now Solomon, Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen. Well, let's pause there before we do verse 23. Back to verse 22. A core is a normal load for a donkey. So a a, a full donkey, 30 full donkeys of fine flour each day was uh, consumed by Solomon. And that's what those overseers were making sure was being funneled into the kingdom from, from the people. As Samuel had warned, verse 23, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures and... 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, that would be seers and roebucks, uh, and fatted fowl, for he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tifsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side, all around him, verse 25, and Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan to as far as Bathsheba, all the days of Solomon. So, wealth, uh, supplies pouring in, caravans constantly coming into Jerusalem just to support the king and and the staff and the military, which was huge by this point, uh, the days of the nation's greatest material prosperity at this point. It took two kings to get them here, David and, and Solomon. Saul contributed nothing to this. 
And Solomon would reign for 40 years, for 40 years of this. Verse 26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Well, a lot of the commentators, whenever they get to big numbers and sometimes even miracles, they look to walk it back. And I think that's a mistake. I don't doubt the accuracy of of this number at all, 40,000 stalls. And, And here's what I'll base it off of. At the start of the Civil War, the northern states had over three and a half million horses. The guy counting them was horse by the time he was done. <laughs> 100,000. Uh, anyway, the Confederate States had 1.7 million horses. And uh, yeah, somebody keeping records of these things, probably tax-related. Anyway, in July of 1861... The two armies were nearly equal in strength with less than 200,000 soldiers. At the peak of their troop strength in 1863, Union soldiers outnumbered Confederate soldiers by a ratio of two to one. The size of the Union forces in January of 1863 was over 600,000. So you have 600,000 troops on active duty, and over 3 million horses. Well, David's standing army was two hundred, almost 300,000, with the militia was over a million and a half. So he's got a larger amount of troops. So I don't have any problem. The 40,000 stalls for horses compared to the millions in the days of the Civil War, I don't see any problem with that. So that's my take on it uh, to those commentators. Some of them are okay, uh, but they... they Let's just have them in mind. Sometimes you buy a commentary, and when you read a verse, the commentator gives you four other views, then then he will give you his view. And I detest that. I'm not interested. I bought the book with your name. I want to hear what you have to say. If I wanted that guy's opinion, I'd go get his book. So there's this war that's going on all the time in some of these commentaries. The the more intellectual they uh, feel the more they have to debate another scholar. And I I try not to bring that into the pulpit like I'm doing right now. Uh, But that's where that comes from. It kind of grates on you sometimes. That that guy, he's wrong. He's wrong. And I'm going to tell everybody. So anyway, coming back to this. uh, And in the early days, it used to really bug me. I'm not reading that guy anymore. I, I disagree with him. And I've grown up a little bit since then. And uh, now I just, I don't agree with him, and I'm better than him. (laughs) All right, back to reality. Verse 28, uh, well, 27. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply, and the Queen of Sheba will find that out. This had to have just been amazing. Uh, and, and we know it was because God blessed this man with wealth and wisdom. <clears throat> the conquered nations, uh, they knew this was tribute to the king. They were subjects, and uh, they would not have had much, too much of a problem. They would like to have not paid, but what are they going to do? They would accept it. The Jews from the tribes, however, they resented this, and that comes out in chapter 12, 
when they go to Rehoboam and say, hey, you need to lessen the burden on us with these taxes. You're killing us. And that caused the split. Uh, the revolt, verse 28. <clears throat> they also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses, the steeds, each man according to his charge. Well, they've got to feed them. Um, and God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. So here's the spiritual feature that, you know, we uh, tend, I do at least, I get excited about. The cores on donkeys and stuff like that, you know, I know it's part of it, but it's just, you know, it doesn't excite me when reading. Um, <clears throat> extraordinary insight the man had. Because it was a gift from God to him. There was nothing in him that could have gotten the man to the level of insight that he did reach. Where it says exceedingly, well, that's when God gave Solomon wisdom. Then God says, it says, an exceedingly great understanding. Empathy. He could pay attention to someone. And not be looking to, you know, sometimes when we talk, we're, we want the other person to just finish so we can go. You know, can you just finish saying what you're saying? Okay, I can't wait anymore. I'm going to have to interrupt you. And, uh, you know, we, we have to check that. It's rude. Um, but we're all susceptible to it. Well, here, when he has this great understanding, he's empathetic. He can feel what the other person is going. He's listening. He's hearing them out. Some people, you know, when they talk, I think this is more so with the, with the women than the men, they're formulating their thoughts while they're talking, whereas the man has pretty much formulated his in his head, and so he says it. And this causes, uh, it's good to know that. You'll be pay more patient with each other when you recognize that. Um, if it works for you, let me know how you did it. But <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I do believe that uh, very much. And uh, the largeness of heart, he genuinely cared. That's why he was empathetic. It was the genuine care with this man. And God gave this to him. So God did not just say, <clears throat> well, you only need wisdom. He says, no, you're going to need wisdom. and you're gonna... It's like everything else in life. You know, I, I got a, a rowboat. Yeah, we're going to need oars. <laughs> you know, other things that go with it. Uh, it's hard to row a boat with no seats. You know, you're kind of like down. <laughs> like, so... Uh, that's where the ape hangers for motorcycles came from. Never mind. Uh, let's go back to this. Uh, largeness of heart. When these qualities are lacking in somebody, are they not noticeable? When someone is not wise, when someone is not empathetic, does not understand other people's pain, is, not, is, is insincere, well, Solomon did not have that. And I think, again, when the Queen of Sheba comes... She's blown away by this. When she's talking to him, he's actually listening. And when you go to Solomon's court and you say, this is my problem, he's listening, as we saw in chapter 3. Like the sand on the seashore, uh, that's an inexhaustible and abundant amount. God never hijacked Solomon's will, though. He gave him the gifts, but he did not say, now that you have the gifts, you're going to do what I tell you to do. He leaves it to the man. And, of course, Solomon fails. He, he succeeds in the eyes of the world or shallow faith, but there's no depth, and we're going to come back to that. Verse 30, so Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men 
of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. <clears throat> that would include Babylon, which wasn't really that much right now. Verse 31, at the time that Solomon lived, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrite, and his fame was in all the surrounding regions. Well, Ethan the Ezrite is credited with Psalm 89. And Solomon, that's just in passing, but Solomon's gift made him famous and superior as far as, as thought goes. I don't know, they rate chess masters. They have a rating system. I think the top chess master in the world, grandmasters at 28-something, whatever that means, uh, Solomon would have been off the chart uh, as a reference point. So going back to uh, verse 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. Well, not all at once. And his songs were 1,005. So he wrote Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. Of course, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and, and the Song of Songs. Most of the 3,000 Proverbs are gone. We have not even 600 of them preserved. <clears throat> and not all of those are directly attributed to him. But it is hard to write one proverb. Just try to write, come up with a fresh proverb. Um, verse 43, uh, 33. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. <laughs> so this knowledge is not imparted. That's hard work. That's studying those things. He makes mention of that in his writings. That he considered these things. The part that is divine is that God gave him the wisdom to value the knowledge he was getting and to apply himself. So he could have said, well, God has made me wise, but he's too lazy to study. So he still have insight, but he just wouldn't know about a lot of things. Well, Solomon had the whole package. I mean, Queen of Sheba tries to, you know, give him riddles and trick him, you know. Uh, so, and she could not. So, hard work. Wisdom excited the quest for knowledge. Now, I mentioned, <clears throat> I had a mentor many years ago, and one of his favorite sayings to me, I don't know where he, maybe he got it somewhere, I don't know, but he, he said, the love of learning opens the gateway to knowledge. And that has just been so true. If you love to learn. Uh, there's a difference between being curious and nosy, and we try to teach our children that. Uh, so to be curious about something. Well, Solomon had a broad range, and not all of us have that. Sometimes, you know, you know maybe you say, well, chess bores me. But you like, you know, something else, and hopefully apply it. And you younger Christians, I am talking to you, and I hope you're, you're getting that, that you, the love of learning, you have to love to learn. And if you're going to learn and gain knowledge, hopefully it will deepen your walk with God. We had hoped for more from Solomon. We had hoped that this wisdom, coupled with the knowledge and these other virtues, that he would have this profound walk with God. And we got the opposite. And that tells us sin is real. That's the whole purpose of the blood sacrifices. 
God is saying by the sacrifice of these animals, this is real. This is a real thing. It's no joke. The feelings are in it. You know, skin in the game, we might say. But, on the other side, imagine what the kingdom would have looked like if God did not impart wisdom to Solomon. We may have had what we get, got in the northern kingdoms um, not long after, a lot faster. Ecclesiastes 2.5 <clears throat> I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Well, he probably did plant a few flowers here and there, but he had mostly slaves set it up, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, there's a poem I really like by John Greenleaf Whittier, Whittier uh, Maud Muller. And it's a story of a judge riding on a horse, and he comes across this young girl. She's out raking leaves, and they get this dialogue, and they're from two different social standings. So, But there's you know that moment where... They, they admire each other, but it, it ends there. But anyway, in the, the poetry, he says, He spoke of grass and flowers and trees, of singing birds and humming bees. And when I read that, I always think of Solomon. Uh, because, you know, of this verse that uh, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, etc., etc. It's uh, okay to read wholesome things if you're going to learn how to... If you're going to learn, you have to read. And if you're going to read... Uh, you should end up writing, and that will really help. Anyway, but it won't shorten your sermons. Verse 34, And men from all nations, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Well, a little hyperbole there, an overstatement to make the point that Solomon was just famous, and people would go out of their way. Ecclesiastes are lectures, you know, probably taken from his... Lectures to people who would come and hear him speak, and thus he opens with the words of the preacher. He's not preaching in the sense that, you know, from the gospel from a pulpit or verse by verse. He's, you know, expounding on life in, and hopefully under the eye of the Almighty. <clears throat> so, from the time he goes to the throne to the time he builds the temple... He is spiritual, as far as we can see. But then he appears to walk or drift away from God. And a drift is a slow thing. You, you don't, you're not even conscious of it. If, you know, if, if you're not paying attention, you, you won't get it. A pastor from, oh, I don't know, he was born in the 1800s, died in the early 1900s, Alexander White, a true Scottish preacher, and his sermons are worth reading. He writes about Solomon, There is no 32nd or 51st or 130th Psalm of David in all the volume of Psalms of Solomon. And he's saying, what is missing from Solomon is the spirit of repentance. In those Psalms, David is conscious of his sin. He's confessing his sin. He's talking about it. You know, Lord, if you were to count sin, who would... He just goes into these things. Creating me a clean heart, O God. Well, Alexander White continues, No, there is no real repentance, real or assumed, anywhere in Solomon. And then he concludes the Sermon on Solomon. The secret worm that was gnawing all the time in the royal staff upon which Solomon leaned. The lack of repentance would cause him to topple over. 
He wouldn't be supported. And that's his life. There's a very accurate and poetic way of saying that Solomon, he just did not have, did he feel he was too busy or too big to address his sin? And this is a dividing, dividing factor between he and David. Well, we now look at the fifth chapter of 1 Kings. Here, Solomon is obtaining the materials for the construction of the temple. Because when David lays out the temple, he lays it on heavy. We talked about he had this, <clears throat> no pun intended, this sunshine moment in his life where he, he was, you know, couldn't keep warm. And it was probably in the colder months, Jerusalem can get a little chilly. And uh, but then when the summer comes, he, he, he looks like he, he just was able to muster the energy to, to lay out this speech to the nation, a series of speeches, and they're quite powerful. They're in uh, First and Second Chronicles. We, we pick up some of what David said, and we'll be referencing that. Uh, but <clears throat> this section details uh, the acquiring the materials and his relationship and trade agreements with King Hiram of Tyre who is an exciting character himself, at least a little bit we know of him, is very positive. So we look at verse 1 of 1 Kings 5. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And that's the first thing about Hiram that we're introduced is that he loved David. And how can you not love, well, I mean, David gave a few people reasons not to love him. Uh, but overall, he was a charismatic character. You, when I'm sure David was the type, when he walked in the room, you just knew he was in the room without even looking almost. And uh, he, in the latter part of David's reign, Hiram becomes king, and they hit it off. He supplied David with materials to build David's palace the one that Solomon would not allow his Egyptian wife to, to come to. In verse 5, then, I'm sorry, verse 2 of chapter 5, then Solomon sent to Hiram saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of Yahweh, his God, because of the wars which he fought against him on every side until Yahweh, Put his foes under the soles of his feet. Solomon maintains that David was a man of God. His father was a man of God and he was a man of war. And that gave Solomon the territory he now enjoys. But it also barred David from being directly associated. So God sort of puts up a, a, a buffer between David and the temple. I love David. But I don't want you to associate the place of sacrifice with human bloodshed. Uh, <clears throat> sin is awful to God. That's my take on it. Sin, sin is saying, God is saying, I hate the sin. I hate the problems that it causes. And I want you to know I am no fan of war, though I must use war because of the resources that I have from sinners. And I am a strong believer that God works with, his, with the resources he has. Not exclusively, because he can, of course, create resources. But as a rule, Job, that's the story of Job. God is boasting on the resources. Hey, consider Joel, uh, not Joel, Job. Okay. 
So, Job, have you considered Job? That, that was God's resource. None like him. A man that hates evil and does good. Um, we ought to try to give God the resources to use us. And the proof of that is, <clears throat> uh, God sends people who can sing to a church. Because if he didn't, you either would have no music or you would wish you had no music. So, uh, uh, here... Uh, David, King David, uh, the memory in Hiram is sweet. Solomon maintains that his dad was a man of God. Verse 4, but now, my, but now Yahweh my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And yeah, the name Solomon means peace, and his kingdom is characterized uh, by no war, no lack of war. Peace. <clears throat> Here in verse 4, where he says, but now Yahweh, my God, he acknowledges that his, his dad's God is his God. He's not ashamed of that. The God of his father is his God. This is why it's so pronounced when, when Isaac says, the God of my father, or Jacob, the God of my father, and later the God of my father is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're saying, we have this unbroken witness. We've not departed we didn't get become grown and figure we're too big for the God of our parents. Satan delights in turning children from the true God of their parents to anything else. And uh, we should be ready for this. I, I don't know how much we can do outside of prayer at some point. Uh, but this is not something that is, uh, if it happens, it's not, ooh, this is so unheard of. It's, all, it's throughout the scripture. And it's, just a, it's a delight to see. Solomon not departing from the God of his father, uh, which is, in this case, of course, David, verse 5. And behold, <clears throat> I propose to build a house for the name of Yahweh my God, as Yahweh spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Well, Israel's forest did not have the cedar trees that Solomon wants to use. Uh, Tyre does, the, the, the land of Tyre and Lebanon. Uh, Solomon's kingdom, again, uh, the peace it has is because of David. But, and the treasures, David amassed treasures. And so here's where it gets exciting. Towards the end, David says in First Chronicles 22, Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of Yahweh, 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond measure. For it is so abundant, I have prepared timber and stone also that you may add to them. He goes on in chapter 29 of 1 Chronicles now for the house of my God I have prepared with all my might. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for my holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. And so here's David he's speaking to the nation, Solomon present. He's handing over the kingdom to Solomon, and he's saying, I have thrown everything into the, to the house of God. And he wants the nation to do something with what he's bequeathing uh, to the temple, to the building of the temple. 
And uh, as I mentioned, you know, you, you contrast what we hear from Solomon with things like this from David. And is, is it, it's no surprise you'd rather read what David has to say than what Solomon has to say. This is not boring to me. This is exciting to me. And David hands Solomon the plans for the house, the blueprints that God gave to David. First Chronicles 28, verse 19. All this, said David, Yahweh made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of these plans. And so when he says to Solomon, be strong, be a man, and get the job done. Be wise. You're wise enough. And this is, you know, it, it meant something to Solomon. And just he just did not keep it up. because. Of, and now, always in criticizing Solomon, you have to say, well, wait a minute. What if I was a trillionaire? Uh, you know, never had a need for money. I've had so much of it. Uh, would I have done better? Any urge that I, if I really liked oranges, you know, I could just buy them all. Uh, you know, I just to be a slave to my urges, which was what happened. I think mo- large of it, much of it was Solomon, maybe, you know, a, a son can compete with the dad. And that, I think, is a wrong turn. Instead of building on what the dad has instilled, the, the son can try to outdo the dad, make their own name for themselves. And that's not always a problem unless he's departing from something that is... It cannot be improved. And Solomon did that. He tried to build a nation, not with Psalms and, you know, the, the, the life of David, but with these deals, these wheelings and dealings. And like, oh, dad didn't understand business like I understand business. Yeah, well, you look at, look at your fruit. Look at the Psalms David wrote. Uh, Israel's national symbol today is not the star of Solomon. That would be a dollar sign, probably, or... The AU for gold from the chart. Anyway, uh, David, not stopping there, he assembled artisans and craftsmen and laborers and to follow those plans. And you can, we, um, we have time. First Chronicles 22. First Chronicles 22, verse 1. Then David said, This is the house of Yahweh God, and this is the altar of burnt offerings for Israel. There's just a passion in his tone about these things. There's nothing that is uh, routine in his language. And you say, well, you know, I'm not excited about God. Well, tell God that. Tell him you're not excited. Ask him to fill you with this spirit. So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stone to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance uh, for the nails of the doors. That would be bolts, too. High strength, 490s, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, uh, doors for the gates and joints for the bronze in abundance beyond measure. And, see, and so it just goes on. Uh, and it's very exciting reading. Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for Yahweh must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparation before his death. I mean, just that's, that's the excitement. So if you've had that kind of excitement and you've lost it, well, you've got to understand that's part of the struggle. 
That's part of the fight to prove the faith, that the genuineness of your faith may be proven to you, not God, to you. And once you get that, okay, this is how it is. I've got to just sail through these, you know, iceberg-laden waters of life, but I'll come out ahead. If, you, if I stay the course, you, you will. You'll spring back. It may take years, but it's, it's, it is certainly not worth saying, you know, I used to be excited about God, and just life just hammered me, and now I'm not excited anymore. Uh, that is a defeat that uh, I think all of us are able to avoid by just learning that, okay, this is the fight. It's not that God hates me. It's not that I'm some sort of special kind of fool. It's that this is the fight. Uh, Boredom is a beast. It's real stuff. Um, Disillusionment. I expected more from Christianity. I expected, you know, Wednesday nights to have a packed sanctuary. Well, I didn't get what I wanted, so I quit. Uh, Of course, that would be, you know, you look at that, you say, what are you doing? Well, then... Why would we expect that that would be acceptable on a personal level? When a Christian says, I didn't get out of Christianity what I wanted, so I'm not so excited about Christianity anymore. Uh, that's, that's the devil in your flesh. <clears throat> that ain't God. God says, persevere. Anyway, uh, David, 450 tons of gold. That's a lot. I, I, I would take it like a few pounds I'd be happy with. 38 thousand tons of silver. This is what Solomon had to work with. Thousands, tons of bronze and iron and precious stones and publicly uh, presented to Solomon. Verse 6 now of chapter 5. Now therefore command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon. He's he's speaking to Hiram while sending a written document. And my servants will be with you with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians, which is the people under uh, Hiram's rule. So Solomon admits that we don't have the skill level, nor do we have the, the harvest of trees. And he offers to put his workers with Hiram's workers. Now, Hiram, I think, is saying, no, I am not giving up trade secrets of my lumberjacks so that you can then enter into this. Uh, you know, I think in verse 9, it, it, comes, it suggests that. He's going to use Solomon's labor force once the trees are fell and chosen and fell and ready for shipment, then he'll probably use them. But I don't think Hiram is going to give up the knowledge of how to do this to anybody, and that would be wise. When um, when I was an apprentice, some of the old timers told me said before there was an apprentice school said you know if they're old timers, which would be very old, <laughs> said if they didn't like you, they would not show you anything, and if they tied a knot, they'd turn their back so you couldn't see them tie the knot. They guarded. If they didn't like you, they guarded their, their knowledge, the journeymen from the apprentices. But if they liked you, uh, man, they show you everything. And I enjoyed that. I mean, I had great teachers uh, in that industry, men who would show me how to do things that I could never learn in a, in a classroom. So uh, knowledge is power, and 
And Hiram knows that. You don't get to be king and stay king not knowing that. Verse five, verse 7. So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be Yahweh this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. Well, here he acknowledges Yahweh as, you know, the, the God of Solomon and David. <clears throat> That's consistent with the practice in those days of the kings, but there's more to it. At this time, Solomon writes to Hiram, Second Chronicles chapter 2, but who is able to build him a temple? Well, actually, he's writing this to Hiram, just like I mentioned. But I want to read a little different uh, inflection. But who is able to build him a temple since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? And so we have a song like that. You know, the, the heavens can't contain him. You know, uh, forget it. All I had it when I was reading. Anyway, Hiram writes back. He, he, he answers this and other statements of Solomon in that letter. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon. He says, because Yahweh loves his people, he has made you king over them. Hiram also said, blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, for he has given King David a wise son, endowed with prudence and understanding, who will build a temple for Yahweh and a royal house for himself. So my thoughts are that Hiram doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to. He can acknowledge Solomon's God. But he goes a step further and he says, Yahweh is the maker of heaven and earth. To the ancients, that's huge. And to us too. It's something, again, the evolutionists can't figure out. When I was getting on the scientist Sunday, it was the one that buy into the evolution. I mean, we need scientists. I mean, how do you get an Oreo cookie without a scientist to be just so perfectly... All right, all right. So... Uh, we do need them, of course. And next time you get a headache, you know, thank you for the scientists, Lord. Uh, God opened that knowledge up to them. My point is, uh, I believe that Solomon, uh, Hiram, I lean towards him being a true believer. The fact that he doesn't mandate his kingdom to follow the God that he believes in is does not undo that. Well, anyway, you may have a differing opinion. But verse 8 then Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the message which you sent me, and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and the, the cedar and the cypress logs. The cedar known for its beauty, its fragrance, durability. Um, <clears throat> the, it was used for construction of not only buildings throughout even Persia, the Persian Empire, but um, ships also. The biblical authors hold the cedar tree as uh, the envy of all the other trees. You know, said the bramble to the cedar tree, and, and you get that parable in Judges. Cypress logs, a species of evergreen. <coughs> Pardon me. These, uh, I think, both beautiful trees. Verse 9. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in rafts by... See to the place you indicate to me, and will have them broken apart there, 
And then you can take them away and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. So he doesn't mention, yeah, you can let your workers work beside ours. That's left out. Uh, He offers to cut and transport the lumber to Solomon to whatever port he chooses. Afterwards, Solomon's workers can take it from there. Um, He wants to maintain the monopoly over the cedar production, and understandably so. Although verse 14, again, will indicate that Solomon sent workers to Lebanon, and there they labored. Again, probably not gaining the, the skills that they would have liked. Verse 10, Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. Verse 11, And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores, 20, cores of wheat and food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave Hiram year by year. So evidently wheat and olives were not plentiful entire because the lamb was taken up with the uh, cedar trees. Anyway, that's not necessarily why, but that's what he imported from Israel. Verse 12, So Yahweh gave Solomon wisdom, and he had, uh, as he had promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. Then King Solomon, verse 13, raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. In verse 14, and he sent them to Lebanon. <clears throat> 10,000 a month in shifts. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. So 30,000 men who labored in Lebanon uh, in shifts, uh, 10,000 a month and four-month rotations. Verse 15, Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains. Well, limestone was the principal material in the temple. We'll come back to that in a moment. Besides 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in the work. Well, if you don't have supervision, you don't have production. uh, When the boss walks out the room, everybody starts talking. So uh, supervision is a good thing. The post office, they have only supervisors. I shouldn't say that. I worked for the post office years ago, and everybody was a supervisor. I'm telling you, it was bad. I quit, and then a year later, I got a notice that I was relieved. <laughs> That's a true story. It's like, what is this? Huh? You're no longer employed. As... I know that. Anyway. <laughs> and then King Solomon commanded them to quarry large stones. Well, I think, let's go back to verse, I've read 16. He commanded them to quarry large stones, verse 17, costly stones and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. Well, these are prefabricated, we would say today. They're made, they're they're put together off-site, and then they're transferred to the building site, uh, from where, in this case, stones quarried, and uh, this would disallow the sound of iron tools being heard on the temple grounds. And that's in chapter 6, verse 7. And the temple 
when it is being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. And um, just the, the, the sound of men working was really, it was a really quiet job site. Even to this day, when they put up cathedrals by stone, it takes decades, and it's very quiet. Compared to a you know steel frame building or a concrete building, it's very loud. Uh, all the banging around and stuff. This is um, uh, verse eighteen. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites quarried them, and they prepared timber and stone to build the temple. How do you get these large stones? Well, you, you put them on logs, and you pull them with your mules, and they roll on the logs. And as they get to the before they get to the end, you put other logs in front of them. You just keep rolling like you got a uh, a land train, and it's uh, very effective. Uh, the the Gebelites were known for shipping and building ships and stone cutting. They show up in Ezekiel as builders of and working on ships. And so they're in Lebanon overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. So that's this evening's consideration. We'll have to um, struggle through a few more chapters before we... Well, it gets um, next session, we, it's the building of the temple, uh, then the palace of Solomon... Bathsheba comes to town. Solomon is rebuked by God. His son comes to power. What a disaster. And then we get to the prophets coming to deal with these uh, heretic apostate kings. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you once again. Your word is always a lamp to our feet. In one way or another, it illuminates for us the right from the wrong, those things that are worth going after and those things worth bypassing. We pray you get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name we ask you, amen.